0: Good morning, Journey. Nice to see you all. My name's Chris. Really glad you're here. Uh, I thought it was interesting that we encouraged you to be a part of what's going on in base camp, and then it was a clip of the comedian telling you how gross kids are. Uh, So maybe we missed something there. Um, It's really sanitized down there. We take good care of that. Uh, No, kidding. So anyway, be, be around that stuff. I, I wanted to give you all an update before we get to the preaching on what Journey is going to be doing in light of what's been happening in Houston with Hurricane Harvey. So the, the first uh, part of that update would be where we're continuing to just figure out what we're going to be able to give financially uh, to, to help there. And we're going to keep you updated on, on kind of how we do that over the next couple weeks and probably take portions of our, our tithe here and send that there. Uh, some other cool things are happening with that as well, though, because we're leveraging some unique relationships that we have as a church with churches in Houston. And so we've already partnered with a couple churches here to send some supplies and needed things for churches there. And the cool thing about that is the church that we're connecting with, or churches in Houston, they weren't uh, damaged by the hurricane, and so they're able to to really mobilize people and and resources and relief in that place. And so we're we're going to kind of be able to keep you updated as that unfolds and we work on that. So if you're interested in either being a part of potentially sending a relief team down there, or you want to support a relief team, you can. put Harvey on your info card and we'll give you more information about that. Uh, another cool thing about connecting with actual churches in Houston is that a hundred percent of what we give is able to go to those in need. There's like just, there's no overhead essentially and all of that, no fees. We've got to cover that sort of thing. So um, we're, we're going to keep you in the, the loop on that. We're going to keep praying. I, I believe we've even said today is officially a national day of prayer, which is fitting because we showed up at church to anyway. And so we'll pray for Hurricane Harvey here in a moment and all the people impacted by the hurricane, something that... Just as I've been paying attention to what's going on, it's interesting how when our eyes are open to um, more local tragedies, we begin to see more global tragedies as well. And there's flooding uh, happening actually all over the world in places like Bangladesh and Sierra Leone and uh, over 100,000 Nigerians have been displaced recently. And, and like, you just start to pay attention to what's going on and, and you realize uh, that there's deep needs all around us. And so... Um, we're going to take a moment here to pray for those in Houston in particular. As we're, we're praying, you can be praying for the, the needs of all of those all over the world. So let's take a, a moment just silently to pray and then I'll close us out here in a second. God, we come before you this morning acknowledging that we, a collective we, need you. We ask that you would reveal yourself in the midst of tragedy, that you would reveal yourself to the people of Houston who are suffering currently, that you would be the God who brings restoration and that you would bring that through your people partnering with you in it. God, I pray that for those who need shelter, you would provide shelter, you would provide food, you would provide clothing, you would provide support, rescue, family, community. God, we we grieve with the city of Houston and we We ask that you would draw near to them. Uh, We read in Psalms, we pray that you would uh, draw near to the brokenhearted and rescue those whose spirits are crushed. God, we ask that you would continue to be the God who rescues, that you would restore. Um, Often we run short of words. And so God, I, I pray that even every day would be a day of prayer for us as we, as we look to those in need and we ask you to intervene in their lives. And if there's those of us who need to, to go and be and do, I pray that you would move us to action. If there's those of us who need to give, I pray that we would give uh, cheerfully. And I, if there's those who need to support, I pray that we would rally in those ways as well. God, uh, may your global church uh, move and act and continue to point to you, a uh, God who longs to restore all things. Uh, We love you and we acknowledge that you are God, even in the midst of tragedy. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to tell you a story. It's the year 15, 15 AD. And there's this young boy about five years old who lives along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. His name is Simon. Simon. And at this point in Simon's life, this young Jewish boy is currently learning all about the Torah, the first five books of our Christian Bible. And what he's learning to do at five years old is he's learning to read them and write them. And because copies of Torah are scarce, he's learning to memorize them as well. As he grows up and he nears his 10th year of living, he has now memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. At this stage in his education, now that he has those books memorized, as he has the Torah memorized, he begins to learn about the, the prophets and their writings. And at the same time that he's learning about that, he's learning about all the oral interpretations of the scripture from the great teachers of the faith. And so Simon and his family are hoping that his teacher, the Jewish rabbi that he's learning under, will deem that he has what it takes to continue studying in this way. That he has what it takes to be a follower of this rabbi. They're hoping this rabbi will say to Simon that you could be my disciple. They're hoping that Simon will be able to follow this rabbi everywhere he goes because that rabbi believes he can be like him. But then alas, our friend Simon, around the age of 15, does not get to continue learning to be like his rabbi. He's sent home with a bunch of other students who essentially didn't have what it took to keep studying to go and learn the family trades. No longer do they get to study alongside learning the family trade. They are exclusively focused on that. Apparently Simon did not have what it took to be a disciple of the rabbi in his village. And so now here he is, 15 years old, and he finds himself learning the business of fishing. He's going to be a fisherman for the rest of his life. And if Simon's honest with himself, as honest as 15-year-olds could be, he's a bit disappointed that he didn't have what it took to be a disciple of this rabbi. I mean, don't get him wrong. He's glad that there's a trade to learn from his dad and he can learn it alongside of his brother and that they can fish all the rest of their days. But part of Simon always longed for someone to say to him, follow me and I will show you the way. And with my help, you have what it takes to be like me. Today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna be looking at what it means to be a disciple specifically a disciple of Jesus. And if I were to ask you, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I think for the most part, no matter how familiar we are with Jesus, we would say things pretty similar. We'd say it means to act like him and to be like him and to follow him. And, and I would agree with you on that. I'm just gonna clarify it a little bit and provide my definition of what it means to be a disciple. So being a disciple of Jesus is learning to become like Jesus. Keywords learning and become. Being a disciple of Jesus is learning to become like Jesus. So then, why is it so hard to learn and become like Jesus? Why is that such a challenge? So we're going to continue the culturally contextual but somewhat made up story that I just laid out for you a moment ago by looking at Matthew 4:18 through 22. And this will take place not long after Jesus has been baptized. So Jesus comes on the scene. He spent his first 30 years building stuff, having friendships, being a brother, being a son, that sort of thing. And now here he is at the age of 30, shows up and he gets baptized by John the Baptist. And as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit falls on him and thus begins his life of ministry. The first thing that happens after the Holy Spirit falls on him is that the Spirit leads him into the wilderness where he learns that there is this battle between light and dark and good and evil and he finds that his identity is who his father says he is and he comes out of the wilderness holding tightly to that identity and as he comes from the wilderness, the ministry begins and he starts teaching and healing and those things are happening and so now we find ourselves here in Matthew 4, 18 after a little bit of that has been going on in the life of Jesus and here's what happens on this day. Verse 18, one day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. So they were fishing. But why were they fishing? they were fishing because they didn't have what it took to keep following in the studying of their rabbi. So that's why they're here fishing now. And now that's why in this moment that Jesus comes along and says, come and follow me, that they drop their nets right there and go after someone who is essentially saying to them, you have what it takes to become like me. And I've always wondered why this happened so quickly and definitively, right? Like it's just like immediately they drop their nets and they go. And at first I'm like, all right, so Simon, who's known as Peter and Andrew, they're probably like 18 to 22 and just dropping your stuff and leaving it there is pretty typical of that demographic in general. And so I thought that might be it at first, right? That they would naturally just drop their stuff and leave it and go. Except I don't necessarily think that's true, right? What's happening is finally someone's now saying what they've longed to hear, that you matter, you have worth, you might be able to become something if I help you do that, right? There's more to this for you. And so it's a big deal to them that someone would call them. They can't help but drop their nets and go right away. And then I start thinking about James and John and their father Zebedee. And so I'm really interested in Zebedee, which is honestly probably the only person in this room who's interested in Zebedee. And so I'm like, what's going on in the life of Zebedee? A couple other people, okay. Well, let me tell you about Zebedee, right? Because I think what happens at first is Zebedee's sitting there and the three of them are repairing their nets. And Jesus comes along and calls his two sons, James and John, and they leave in the middle of the net repairing project. Right. And at first I'm like thinking Zebedee's like typical, Right? Of course, during the repair project, they're going to bounce, right? And so, so they're repairing the nets, they go. But he, here's what I actually think. Like imagine the next day, right? Zebedee finishes up the project. He repairs the nets because he's got to. That's the way he makes his living. The next day he's coming into the village, right? He's coming in to do what he always did. Get ready to go fishing, get his boat, get his nets, all that thing. And he comes in, but he doesn't have James and John in tow today. And somebody like shouts out to him, hey Zeb, short for Zebedee. Wait, where's James and John? And he's like, well, a rabbi came along. He said, come and follow him. He thinks they might have what it takes to be like him. They, they, this rabbi seems to think James and John might, might be able to, to, to be like him, to learn something. Again, so he's got his head held high. Because they had been told they didn't and now they're told they do. And so if Jesus is saying the same thing to each of us, right? Follow me. He's saying, hey, follow me. You have what it takes to be like me to find out who you really are. Let me help you do this. Then the question is, why are we so hesitant to hold on to our own nets, our own boats, our own jobs, our own families, our own comfort? It's a heavy question. I'm not going to answer it for you. you got to work through that yourself. So have fun with that this week. (laughs) Moving on. If to be a disciple of Jesus then means that we're learning to become like Jesus, it has to start with this question. And it's really basic. And you get to ask yourself this. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? And if, like Simon, Andrew, John, and James, your answer is yes, both in yes, I am in word, but also in action, moving, going forward, leaving something behind, then we must work to grasp what this learning to become like Jesus process really looks like. Right? Like, how do we know if we're actually doing it? Right? How do we know if we're actually being disciples of Jesus? And so as we move through Matthew's gospel account, what we do is we end up following Jesus and his new disciples throughout Galilee, right? He was just on the shore of Galilee, loads up on some fishermen, takes them out. And now they're going around and Jesus is teaching and he's announcing the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. And he's healing heaps and heaps of people. All these people are getting healed. All these teachings are different. There's something going on here. And as he keeps doing this, crowds begin to form. People are gathering around Jesus. Some are looking for a rabbi to tell them some new interpretation of the text, what this really means to, to be like him. Some of them, they're looking for healing. Some of them are looking for another kind of miracle. Some of them are looking for simply a place to belong. Some of them are looking on all skeptical, like, I don't know if I trust this guy. And some are looking still for someone to tell them who they really are. And on one of those days when all of the crowds are gathering around Jesus as he teaches and heals, they're coming in close. Jesus climbs up on a mountain. And as he climbs up on the mountain, he sits down and his disciples sit down in front of him. And then the crowds come in behind them and they all are sitting down and Jesus begins to teach. And so picture the scene now. With all of that building up into it that we've talked about, they're sitting down waiting to hear what it is he has to say. And Jesus, who's pretty new on the scene, he begins by telling them who they are. Jesus starts this teaching by saying, God blesses those who are poor, who realize their need for him, who mourn, who are humble, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, who are merciful, whose hearts are pure, who work for peace, who are persecuted for doing right. He says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and say evil things for being his followers. Who are they? They are the blessed. But what's so interesting about that is it's not who we typically think would be the blessed. Right? Those who are mourning are blessed. Those who are poor in spirit are blessed. Those who are persecuted are blessed. It's all backwards already. And so Jesus has a different picture of what his kingdom looks like. And as he lays that out, he makes this transition into who are they? Well, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are to preserve, to give flavor to the earth, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, you're to shine. You already are those things. He doesn't say you're going to be the salt or you're going to be the light. He says, this is who you are. The people who are blessed are not who you thought was going to be blessed and it just so happens you're already salt and you're already light. And as his disciples, this too is who we are. Because at the same time, through his actions, Jesus is saying to us, we are loved and known and accepted. His actions communicate his grace, a grace that will then begin to renew and transform us. And so as this sermon on the mountain continues, Jesus is telling his disciples and us, right, who they are, but also who they must be. So now you know who you are, the first 18 verses of the Sermon on the Mountain, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, this is who you are. And then he spends these next tons of verses through the end of chapter seven in Matthew, who you must be. Your identity comes first. This is who God says you are. And then the action must follow. And so Jesus preaches this action of what it looks like throughout this Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, if you want to read that, because that's pretty challenging as well. So the moment that Jesus calls us to follow him is a moment when he's saying that we matter, that we have worth in his eyes, that we can be like him from the get-go. Our identity, who we are, is rooted in who Jesus says we are. That's how he begins this whole thing. And so that's why I believe it's worthwhile for us to to place ourselves in the the sandals of the disciples as they literally walk with Jesus. As they follow him, we have to understand, that's why I'm telling you the story of Simon, you have to understand what it would have meant to them to be told, come follow me. And what they give up to go and do that and what it means to follow him around. Because you have to imagine what those first disciples were experiencing as they followed Jesus, as they strived to imitate his every action and the very heart behind everything he did. And what's interesting to me, especially in light of the Sermon on the Mount, is I often think about how the disciples, they never took notes, right? I mean, for a lot of obvious reasons, no paper and pencils and stuff like that, right? And like, anytime you try and take notes on a stone tablet, like, God blesses those, hold on, God blesses what? Right, like that's not going anywhere. You just can't take notes on a stone tablet. So I get that. But there's something about that though. Because what they, what they write, what these disciples write, what they record is what they remembered. So essentially for them, it wasn't worth writing down. It was worth living. And if it was worth remembering, it was worth putting into action. It was worth doing. It was worth letting it transform you. Like what they heard was so revolutionary and so life-changing, they couldn't help but internalize it and let it change who they were. Or like, they weren't just like, oh, love your enemies, I'll get to that one. It was like, that was so revolutionary, they couldn't follow Jesus and just push it to the side. It had to become a part of them. So let's step outside of this story of these disciples for a moment. And I wanna ask ourselves another question. I want you to ask yourself, because it's 2017, it's not 30 AD anymore, right? There's a different world that we live in now. So I want you to think about what does it actually look like in 2017 to learn to become like Jesus? So you gotta ask yourself that question. I'm gonna actually allow you time to think about that when I'm not talking. So prepare now. I'm gonna give you 10 seconds to think about what does it actually look like in 2017 to learn to become like Jesus. Think. Okay, 10 seconds is up. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to share your thoughts with a couple people near you. Like literally, that means you have to talk to the people near you about what you just thought. Okay, so go ahead. Carry on, share those thoughts. Actively participate. You guys are pretty shy participators. That's okay. That's a good start. We'll we'll do this again sometime, okay? So you started a conversation, and now I've interrupted you, so you can't continue it anymore because that would be rude. Uh, However, you can actually continue the conversation later, and that's some of what I just hope we continue to perpetuate in our time together is that this is like, this isn't the last word, me talking into a microphone, right? Like continue the conversation, continue the life together out there. Okay, so the, the word disciple, the, the Greek word for disciple occurs at least 230 times in the Gospels and 28 times in the book of Acts. Uh, hashtag Bible facts, you don't really care, I got it. Right, but it's the point is it's there a lot, okay? And every time they use that word, it's not always the actual word disciple in the Bible, but every time that Greek word is translated, it's simply another term for Christian, or for one who professes Christ. And so it would seem to me that all Christians then are disciples and disciplers. All Christians are disciples and disciplers, learners and teachers. All of them. Dallas Willard says it like this. He says, as a disciple of Jesus, I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. Let me say that again. As a disciple of Jesus, I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. He goes on and he says, I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I am learning how to do everything I do in the manner that Jesus did all that he did. In the manner that Jesus did what he did, that's what we're learning, the heart behind why, that's what we're longing to imitate. Those are the actions. It doesn't mean you gotta put a robe on or have flowy hair, whatever pictures we have of Jesus, right? You would learn the heart behind what he was doing. And here's what else we see then about discipleship. We see discipleship happen in community, not in isolation, which is, probably not all that earth shattering but it's also simultaneously shocking on some level too because we so often promote in christian settings like hey are you having your quiet time are you praying are you reading the bible like how's that going which is good i I would hope you try to do some of that stuff too right but you can't actually be discipled in isolation and when we look at the movement of Jesus' followers in the Gospels, we find that it never happens in isolation. It always happens in community. We see that disciples can only be discipled into being like Jesus insofar as that they are engaging in authentic relationships with a community of God's people. Seems to me that we need each other to learn to become like Jesus. Jesus. And this also might be a little shocking. That can't just be this place. Like this is a really good place to be. I'm glad you're here. But this can't be your only place of discipleship community because the reality is you're all facing me and I have a microphone and just talk it back. There's something that has to happen when you sit around a table together or you interact in different life circumstances together. You need people around you. So the question then you get to ask yourself is, are you participating in this type of community-driven discipleship? If no, why not? What do you need for us to do to help you? Like, what's the next step? Then that's something that we can keep talking about. Which all this sounds great. Maybe not to you. I think it sounds great up to this point, but there's still something more in all of this. Because at this point, I think it still sounds relatively simple. Uh, Well, and some of which I suppose it is, right? Like I could have saved us all a lot of time and I could have just, I could have preached the shortest sermon ever. Hey, you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, go act like him. Let's pray. And then you would all go and act. Which maybe if that that actually happened, it could have been a better use of our time. Uh, But I'm just going to extend that about 30 minutes and then we're going to go all act after that. Because here's the thing though that, that adds something more to all of that that isn't as simple as we think it is, right? Jesus says this, he's recorded as saying this in the book of Mark. He says, if you want to follow me, you got to turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and then follow me. Give up your life is what he's saying. It's going to cost you everything is what he's saying. Because that's something that's so interesting to me about this idea of taking up our cross in order to follow him. You know what a cross is? Right, I mean, we have lots of crosses around. We got them on the walls or around our necks or whatever. But for like the original listeners here, they would have been like, oh yeah, the torture device that people die on. That's the cross he's talking about. They would have known that. They would have seen people die on crosses. And so when Jesus says to them, in order to follow me, you got to turn from your selfish ways. And we're like, okay, I can kind of see that one. And then he's like, take up your cross like bear the death instrument on your back and then you can follow me. It's like, all right, that's a little more to it than just the other part, right? So certainly and undeniably, discipleship is also the way of the cross. And Jesus self-sacrificing love is also the way of discipleship. But it's something, while that's hard and challenging and we know there's something to that, Jesus also says on the other side, I've come so that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, all of you who are weary, come and follow me, my yoke, right? My way, my teachings, my interpretation is actually easy for you to bear. The burden that I give you isn't heavy at all. And so we have these extremes of what Jesus has come to do and what it means then to follow him. We see that it's really hard, but it's really worth it, right? There's this dynamic at play. And so it is that we, as disciples, have to learn this. And there is space to learn like, that's what I want us to hear. There is space for us to learn to be disciples of Jesus. If being a disciple is one who learns, then the good but humbling news is that we have not yet arrived and that that's okay. Like, wherever you are now is a really good place to be to start being a disciple of Jesus. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to have anything perfected. You can be a messy beginner and still be a disciple and discipler of Jesus. But we all get to learn that together because here's the the rub in all of this is learning without doing is not really learning. You gotta do something with what you're learning. So that's why you can move into the action of discipling and discipler at the same time. To be a disciple then right is to know who you are in Jesus and to act like it to gather information about Jesus without acting like him is as bob goff says stalking Jesus Are you're just a Jesus stalker if all you're doing is gathering information about Jesus or like you got all the cool facts about Jesus kind of like stored on a card and you keep your distance or like Jesus is over there and you're like Loving, generous, right? And you keep like these lists of facts about Jesus, but you never get close enough to actually know him, which is also a really creepy analogy. I realize that too, but think about this. I think there's the difference between Jesus and just a normal person that's being stalked, which please don't stalk anybody. Uh, <laughs> that, that Jesus, when you're stalking Jesus, he keeps like looking back and he's like, no, no, a little closer, a little closer, like bring those facts just a little closer. Like walk a little, no, no, come on, a little closer, right? Like he wants to take the facts that we know about him and turn them into face-to-face relationship with him. But we have to do something with what we've learned about him. We have to take that step and enter into that relationship with him. Okay, back to the story. You guys forgot we were in a story, but we are still in a story and we're going back. So as Jesus closes this sermon on the mountain... Which was not long after Jesus has called these disciples to follow him, we catch the reaction of those disciples in the crowd that was surrounding around him. This is at the end of what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so the end of 7 gathers this picture of the crowd. They're all wondering and looking at each other when he finishes his teaching like, who is this rabbi? Who is this one who believes that we can be like him? What's going on here? And so here's what we read in Matthew 7, 28, and 29 as this whole teaching closes up. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, that is all of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority. Now remember that word authority, we're going to go back to that. He taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. There was something different about this rabbi. There was something different about the way this guy taught that was quite unlike the other teachers. And so we see that it's a real authority, but it's also this picture of Jesus extending his grace, right? Like the the centerpiece of all of this being like Jesus' discipleship business is him essentially saying to you and I, you have what it takes to be like me if you give up everything and follow me. You'll learn to fish for people, to be so uniquely other oriented as I am, that your love for me and your love for others is going to be what defines you. So he gives them this unique identity up front and he says, this is who you are. And he says, as that moves you into action, you're gonna have a whole new identity that defines you and how you love me and how you love other people. Ray Vanderlaan says it better than I do. And he says this, to be a present day disciple means we must be no less focused on the rabbi. We must be with him in his word. We must follow him even if we are not sure of the final destination. We must live by his teachings, which means we must know those teachings well and we must imitate him whenever we can. In other words, everything becomes secondary in life to being like Jesus. Let that sit for a moment. This is a high calling. But Jesus has already said that if you give him your life, he'll make sure you have what it takes. And here's what I mean by that Matthew finishes his gospel. We get to to chapter 28, and Matthew's finishing up this movement of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus' life. And he makes sure this whole thing is crystal clear. And so here's how he ends his gospel. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and told his disciples. Now, this Jesus that came and told his disciples is the resurrected Jesus. Jesus. You gotta know that, right? This Jesus has already been crucified, buried in the grave, and raised to new life. And now here he is. This is like the last thing he's gonna say. And Jesus came and told his disciples this. He said, I've been given all authority. Remember, we were supposed to remember that word. He says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And I think when they hear that, Right, We were like, of course you have all the authority in heaven and earth. You were raised from the dead. And this is the authority that they noticed, that there was some other spirit at work in this teacher, the spirit of God. And they go, man, that's real authority that he teaches with. And now here he is at the end of all of this. And he's right here in front of his disciples. And he says, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. And they're like, yeah, you have. And he says, therefore, because of that, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now imagine being one of those disciples in all that you've experienced up to this point. Being called for one, watching him be crucified for another and watching him come back to life again. And now here he is standing in front of you and he says, you gotta go and do this, but know this, I am with you always. That's why you can do it. That's why you have what it takes to be like me. And he ascended to heaven and he left behind the power of his Holy Spirit and the whole movement blows up, goes crazy all these things happening that weren't happening before. And all of this was set in motion because God wanted to show his love for us in the flesh. And so we watch Jesus's life, we watch his death, we watch his resurrection. And when we see all of that, it seems to me that it is discipleship is a way of life and death and life again. And so it is to disciple and be discipled, to learn to become like Jesus and help others become like Jesus. How do we live then as disciples of Jesus like that? I'll give you some time to, to think about that and just be still with God now. So if you wanna set stuff aside or whatever you wanna do, you can close your eyes and I, just take a few moments. You can even ask yourself, like, how are you learning to become like Jesus. Who are you being discipled by? Who do you need to disciple? Like there's a lot of really practical questions or maybe just for today, you can sit in the truth of who Jesus says you are as well. So take a few moments with him and then I'll close us in a second. God, we sit with you humbly this morning today. Thank you for just letting us gather in this building on this day in this way. Thank you for the opportunity to to sing, to pray, to learn through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, who you are and what you're like who you think we are and what you long for us to do. Thank you for the gift that this is. Thank you for your son, Jesus. I pray that we would courageously follow him. I pray that we would humbly turn from our selfish ways, that we would boldly pick up our crosses and that we would follow jesus help us to do that put people around us god insert us into community help us to seek it out form it become it so that we might be discipled and disciple others so that we might learn to become more like you and god as we enter into that place of community that place of growth and transformation I pray that we would not keep it to ourselves. I pray that we would take it into all of the places we we go, all of the places we live and work and study and play. And that we would make much of you and that we would point to you and that we would partner with you in your restoration work and you would continue to make lives whole and you'd get all the glory and all the credit for that, God. We love you in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.